So say you, and so says the authority. And here we are, off and running, we think. January the 26th, lecture discussion number 90, I hope, on the book of Joel. I should say again for the Internet audience, no lecture on Super Bowl all Sunday because no one comes. It's not personal. I've gotten used to it. I, however, get to eat walnuts and sunflower seeds for the whole Super Bowl. I'm really looking forward to that, as you know. Yeah, occasional almond. Yeah, those almonds are special. Anyway, uh, we won't be here next week because of that, and we'll be back the 9th, and then the sunlight will be fantastic, and we'll all be cheering for that. Uh, so anyway, I hope it's number 90. I'm not, never sure anymore. It's the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, with some Judges 19, 20, and 21 thrown in today. That's 19 chapter, 20 chapter, 21 chapter. Of course, we always have entropy and uncertainty, and now we have dark matter. Uh, dark matter is fascinating to me, and I hope you see some of the the coherence here, if there ever is any in my lectures. Dark matter, if it exists, this is astrophysics, if dark matter exists in the universe, then I ask, how does it become existent? I asked that last week, is darkness created? If dark matter exists, it is unseen. It cannot be seen, has never been seen. So what's the obvious question right off the bat? Yeah, Why would they say that it exists when no one can ever find it? The astrophysics community has advanced dark matter as the mechanism responsible for stabilizing the rotation of the galaxies. And I'll explain that in the weeks to come because it's so cool. In my view, as I define cool. But naturally, just for today, I am intrigued by unseen forces. You would think that because that's what we as Christians deal with, isn't it? Unseen substances, unseen anything. The personification of the unseen is Genesis 2-7. That is when God breathes himself into a body that he has made out of dust. That's also Genesis 7-22 and Ecclesiastes 12-6 and 12-7, where Solomon says, before the silver cord is loose, make sure you remember your God who gave you that soul and that spirit. That's what makes um, Samson so interesting in the thief on the cross. You know the thief on the cross and Samson, of course, are side by side. I'm just now riffing here. There's nothing in the lecture about either of these. I just decided to do it now. I don't know why. It's happening more and more. Samson, what did he say? Oh, Lord, my God, remember me. Thief on the cross, remember me. Before they died, before the silver course, cord was loose. So you see that tremendous, wonderful symmetry between those two men. And uh, that makes, uh, and who they represent. Anyway, the breath of the spirit of life is unseen, as you know. It is something that is invisible. The mind, your mind, your consciousness, your soul, your spirit, your life force, all of those are unseen. They're all invisible. God is invisible, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. If that's the only verse I ever put on the board the rest of my so-called career, that'll do it. God is invisible. 
God is spirit, John 4.24. You have to wish, worship him knowing that he is invisible. Knowing that he is a spirit. It's a mental process. I've said that many times. A, a prayer is a non-physical act. Dark matter, if it exists, note how I repeat that little phrase. That's the inferred skepticism, undisguised. Dark matter is set aside, therefore, of the Creator God. Both are unseen. That is not an accident. That's philosophical. By the, and it's done intentionally by those who subscribe to physicalism or materialism or atheism or evolutionaryism, evolutionism, all of that. Those are all synonyms. We see the creator in the invisible and they see darkness. Oh, the irony. So they need to define darkness. How did dark, how does darkness occur? Where did it come from? Why is it there? Actually, they don't place dark matter or dark energy, for, which is a separate issue, but not for today. But they don't actually put dark matter in adjacency with the invisible spiritual God because they don't want to do that. But I have noticed that it's done. Their replacement for gravity, uh, for the intelligent agency of the universe, is things like dark matter and dark energy. Dark matter is a construction to maintain a godless paradigm. And I find the gymnastics of it all fascinating because, you see, intelligence and consciousness is never allowed as an explanation in academia. Thus, the necessity becomes to invent an unseen, invisible material, substances that are then utilized as justifications for what they find in the physical reality. And to, to repeat the words of Max Planck, the father of quantum physics, I, I've read it maybe five times throughout my years here. Max Planck said this, and I did it even recently. I regard, this is his quote, I regard consciousness as the fundamental. I regard all matter as a derivative from consciousness. Everything we talk about, everything we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. That is the preeminent physicist of all time. Note that it's not Einstein. Einstein, in my view, makes the top 15. He certainly is not one. Max Planck is one. Niels Bohr. Heisenberg. I could go on, John Bell. Consciousness is the unseen reality, the fingerprints of the creator. So if you want to find God, you must start out realizing that he is invisible. He is spirit. So how do I find him? Because I can't physically see him. And this discussion is important to the church because it leads quickly to emergentism. Which, as you know, is the evolutionist's response to Genesis 2-7. We see Genesis 2-7. And we say, a body was given a spirit. A body was made, and the, and the made structure was given life, consciousness. And the consciousness is unseen. And that is God. I have consciousness, you have consciousness, that is what God gave us. But the, the atheists, they have emergentism. 
And that is their response to Genesis 2-7. Genesis 2-7, to repeat all of this, is the giving of the breath of the spirit of life. God is life, so God must give his life. There isn't any other life except his life. And so for you to have life, for anything to have life, it has to be given. So God gives his life. That is a fundamental, if you will, to repeat that, of Scripture. Christ must give his life. And that starts all in 2-7. Every time Christ says, I give my life, you can read Genesis 2-7. I did that last week, but it bears repeating. It's also Ecclesiastes 12-7, where the life that he gives returns to him for accountability if you're a human being. Emergentism is the premise that our consciousness arises out of the physical brain. So the physical brain develops and then the consciousness comes out of the physical brain and subsequently seizes it, which is irrational. How would that happen? They're saying that the brain creates a source that is not material, and then that not material consciousness, mind, soul, seizes control of the physical brain. And as you know, I've been raising the issue of location of the soul lately because people are asking me about it. And and I also have been given uh, talking about the neurological aspects of the heart in in, as a complement to the location of the soul. Dana and I had this discussion last week. As you know, there's a great deal of thought behind the, the soul, and that is that all of it is everywhere in your body. There is no specific location. It is uh, ubiquitous, if you will. The body is marinated in the spirit. The spirit is everywhere. We find neurology in the heart and the brain. We also find it in the stomach in some degree. It's the autonomic nervous system, the entire nervous system. The ganglia has neurological capability. And and we can find it in in the body really easily now. And where is the soul? As you know, Descartes thought it was in the pineal gland, the third eye. No one ever proved him wrong. If it's everywhere in the body, he's right. And it'll be interesting as we find out how God made us. He says we're amazing. We're incredible. All life is incredible, but he says that you are awesome. That takes you to Yom Kippur, the days of awe. Because, back to the subject, if our mind, soul, consciousness, and spirit, breath of life emerges from our brain, we have a problem. Houston. Why does Houston have all the problems? Apparently, that's just how it is. Let me repeat that. If your mind, our soul, our consciousness, our spirit, the breath of life, if it comes from our brain, emerges out of our brain, the brain is the source of it, then there is a terrific issue now. Not terrific, a catastrophic issue, because the brain is subject to physical death. The brain returns to the dust of which it is, was made. Let me repeat that. The brain is made. Therefore, they, they try to say the brain makes the consciousness. And that, again, is their answer to Genesis 2-7, Genesis 7-22. If the brain dies and the brain can and will die, and if the mind is a product of the brain, then it is a physical certainty that our minds would likewise die. 
And this is the teaching of every biological science department and all of academia throughout the entire world. The exceptions are so few as to be statistically irrelevant. So, what do we say? Well, we start out by saying, impossible to imagine events are impossible. Stick with me here. This is a philosophical uh, debate. Impossible to imagine events are impossible. Therefore, the inverse is correct. It would also be the case. Possible to imagine events are possible. So let's see what's impossible. Cessation of existence cannot be imagined. Go ahead, try it. I'll give, I'll have a fake soda. You cannot imagine cessation of existence. You cannot imagine that you will cease to exist. Let me repeat the premise again. Impossible to imagine events are impossible, and it is impossible to imagine ceasing to exist. Cannot be imagined. Therefore, the cessation of existence is impossible. If it's true, impossible to imagine events are impossible, then cessation of existence is impossible. And if we cannot conceive of a cessation of existence, why can't we conceive a cessation of existence? Because you can't. Why not? Again, spend all night working on this. Good luck. Cessation of existence is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. You've heard me say that many times, but grant me the excuse for today. You can get, have, you can make these intentional mistakes if you are a religious professional. That's the rule. The whole point is, is just by the very fact that you and I, no one can imagine cessation of existence, that eliminates it. Then our minds are not emergent. Our minds did not come from a physical brain. They must originate from a source outside of our physical bodies because the mind is not physical. Our subjective self, our experiencing self, it just simply exists. How can that be explained? And that causes the sovereign or the ascendant question, which I used to call the most obvious of the obvious question. And I thought sovereign and ascendant was far more sophisticated, so I wanted to go that way. Trying to raise my poll numbers on the Internet. Up to four, I think, now. Out of a billion. What is the explanation for the existence of consciousness? And that question is unanswerable for physicalism or evolution or atheism or any of those disciplines. It's never going to be answerable by them. The answer is Genesis 2-7. They reject Genesis 2-7 because it is a religious answer. It really isn't. It is a logical answer. Let's try another approach. Tack. That would be T-A-C-K. People accuse me by people, I mean somebody. Accuse me of saying Tact. I have tack all the time. I tack. I have no tact. 
so I'm not mispronouncing it in case you were one of those who accused me otherwise. All same processes produce, create same products. And same is defined as same. Alike, exact, duh. Brain processes are fundamentally the same. Your physical brain processes are fundamentally the same throughout the brain. Subjective experiences, your self-awareness, our experiencing self is radically different from brain processes and therefore cannot be emergent from the brain and are not emergent. Brain processes cannot and do not produce subjective experiences. They're completely distinct. Same processes produce same products. The brain, don't get me wrong, is an extraordinary machine, but it's just a tool that the subjective self uses. It's a nail gun, a worm drive saw. It's incredible, but without the subjective self, it just sits there. And the subjective self uses the brain to interact with the physical reality. The physical reality, here's something that I have to say over and over again in in my lectures when I used to do this for the eighth grade science class. The physical reality is not required for the mind to exist. Matter, materials, the physical realm is eliminable. Let me repeat that. It deserves a lot of attention. Physical structures, matter, is completely unnecessary to the mind. I can prove that with a video game and a teenage boy. They will not go outside and see a tree their entire lives. Physical matter is completely unnecessary to the mind. Now, that's not a... They'll say that the computer is a physical device and you're all wrong with your analogy, but you get the point. I could have said dreams, couldn't I? Physical matter, physical structure is completely unnecessary to the, to the mind. Essentially, I'm reducing reality to its simplest form, aren't I? I'm eliminating all elements of the physical framework that we all adore. We go look at the mountains. The mountains are the result of the flood. There won't be any more. Look at the sun. Isn't, he's getting rid of the sun. We have a tendency to worship stuff that he doesn't intend to keep. Why is he getting rid of the sun? Do you know? He's the sun, but why doesn't he have the sun? He's, he's there now. He's the sun now. He's powering the sun. It's a nuclear fusion device. It's him that's making it happen. Why doesn't he just keep one? We can have a couple of them. We go, ooh, the sun. But he does it. He gets rid of it. Why? I will help you. It's because the purpose of the sun was to divide the light from the darkness. There is no dividing. So the sun's purpose, and it's a clock, there is no need for it. So it is eliminated. So would you eliminate all elements of the physical framework that we adore, which we shouldn't? Because why does it, what does he say? Worship me in spirit. But we eliminate all elements of the physical frame, framework then, and then assess what is it that remains. If I get rid of it, if I said to you, and I have, that the, all physical structures are completely unnecessary to the mind, then I can get rid of all of them. What is the true reality that remains? 
to phrase the argument a little differently. Can you imagine an environment devoid of physicality? You couldn't imagine ceasing to exist. That's impossible. Now I want you to imagine a, a realm where there is nothing physical, including yourself. Can you do it? And if you can, and you can, then place your disembodied self into that contexture. Put yourself into that environment. What's the implication now? And this is a variation. This is a version of George Berkeley, whom they named Berkeley College after. They named the University of California, Berkeley, after a fantastic theological philosopher named George Berkeley. And he would absolutely despise what they have done. That university may have some value. I don't know if it does or not. I've never researched it beyond the obvious. There may be something of value in it. There usually is. But overwhelmingly, it is a... Oh, oh my gosh. I'll come back to that so that I don't have to put something in the lecture that needs to be removed. George Berkeley's, this is what I'm discussing for you. This is his response in a debate from the 18th century. He died in the 1700s. Where Berkeley invoked Occam's razor against materialism. So this began, this materialism, this physicalism, this atheism grew up in the uh, 1600s, 1700s. And you remember Occam's razor. Occam's razor is uh, the law of economy or of plurality, if you will. Plurality should not be posited without necessity, is what he said. Let me give you that again. Plurality should not be posited without necessity. The point being... Yay! Thank you. That priority should be given to simplicity. So, what that means, if two or more theories are in competition, the least complex is to prevail. And George Berkeley applied this principle to overcome what would eventually morph into evolutionary philosophy back in the 1600s. Already, physicalism had risen up when Darwin uh, stole his idea. And I believe that's the case. Um, then evolution, the physical, the physicalists or the materialists stole Darwin or adapted Darwin along with the communists. By proclaiming that the metaphysical, the spiritual, the soul, the mind did not need the physical, that's what Berkeley did, and therefore the physical was precludable, then what is the simple? The physical then is the simple. That takes us to Proverbs 122, which used to be on the front of the bulletin. It might still be. Here is what it says, if I can find it. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called you, and you refused. I stretched out my hand, and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel. 
and you would have none of my rebuke. There's the discussion, isn't it? That is physicalism versus spiritualism. And uh, eventually this type of discussion arrives at sensory experiences. This is the blind from birth. Every parent should sit down with their kindergarten child. You think I'm kidding, but I'm really not. You need to sit, need, you should, first yourself, you should have the vine from birth deliberation. Every parent should have it with their children before they ever enter the academic monolith. And I'm actually telling you that that is pre-first grade. It goes something like this. Describe a dog, an elephant, a truck, a refrigerator, a tree, to someone who has been blind from birth, no dreams of sight. So you have a blind from birth, no dreams from, of sight, and you are describing to them physical things. Can you successfully accomplish it? Helen Keller. Can you do it? Can you progress at least to some degree? Yes or no? Never raise your hands here. I submit that this is obviously true and has been done many, many times. A blind from birth, no dreams of sight can gain an understanding of a physical entity. You can describe it to them. Now, after you have done that, explain what colors look like. That's a subjective sensory experience. And even if one was to explain photons and waveform and retina or neurology or brain function, my red or blue couldn't be manifestly different from yours. This is the complex. The other was the simple. The physical is the simple. How long, you simple ones, will you love the simple? That is not just a biblical principle. It is a universal principle. The hard problem is that this is the mind-brain problem, the complex. The brain alone cannot account for the functions of the mind, the self, the will, the subjective experience. Physical terms cannot explain subjective experiences. Therefore, physical matter is eliminable. In other words, I can get rid of it. Our subjective self simply exists. Again, you have to ask, how is that possible? And I keep going back to the only place it is delineated. Genesis 2-7. That is how it is possible. Okay, that was fun. As I define fun. And it may not seem applicable to the task at hand, but it should. Genesis 2-7, Ecclesiastes 6, or 12-6-7, dark matter, high entropy, low entropy, and of course Judges chapters 19, 20, and 21. That's where we have been lately. And you heard me. I could have said Joel 2 and Revelation 9. Everyone would know immediately that what I've just talked about would fit with Joel 2 and Revelation 9. Um, those are demonic forces. And you know those because we've covered those. But Judges 19, 20, and 21, it's not so obvious. 
the demonic forces, even though it is obvious. Let's see if I can correct some of that. We return to Genesis, uh, Genesis, Judges 20. I had to rush last week. I went as fast as I could go. I had a great comment from somebody that said, pause is not, not effective when you go this quick. That was really good. Uh, that was, I think that was Daniel. The other Daniel. Oh, the Daniel from, where is he from? Texas, I believe. We have a pretty large contingent of people that pretend to like us in Texas. Anyway, that must be one of your grandchildren, dear, right? Yeah, they're all, they're all, all the problem ones come from us. Um, so I had, I probably, I might have confused some of you, and probably not, but if I did, uh, I'm going to see if I can clean that up. My diabolical plan is to revisit or recap a portion, just in case not everyone got on the bus last week. And, and I did get a letter, not a real letter, an email thingy letter, but so let me read that. It's kind of cool, and it's... Uh, it's still important, though it is digital. I've converted it to physical. That's right. Never worship the pastor. Oh, it happens all the time. If somebody just gushes over the pastor, just say, well, there's too many idiots in this church. I'm leaving. Now, the other, the pastors hate me for that, and I like that they hate me. I like them hating me. I'm affecting their economic structure. I want it to be as bad as ours. Can you blame me? Okay, here's what she, this is Wendy from Dallas. Here's what she says. Help, I'm missing it. Two exclamation points. You keep asking, what is the evidence on the 12 pieces that make the 11 tribes go to war with the Benjamites? I don't have a clue. I think it has something to do with giants and the Nephilim and genetic manipulation. But I don't see how... Or I don't see or know how that could be evident all the, on all the pieces sent throughout the land. And that is a fantastic. Uh, and I actually wrote her back, which I don't always do, as you know, because I don't I get overwhelmed sometimes. But that was fantastic because it fits so well. And actually, Wendy from Dallas didn't miss a thing. She's right on target. She's got a bone firmly locked into her teeth. Judges 19 clearly reflects Genesis 6, Genesis 13, 13, and Genesis 19. There's no controversy about that. Every commentator that you'll find will agree with Wendy here. The gathering around the house, that's Sodom. The great evil, the demanding that somebody be given out of the house. That is an incredible question in its own. Why do I demand you give you have, you have to let they'll say well it's because of the culture. Do you think the sons of Belial or the people of Sodom cared about culture? What are you nuts? Don't answer yes. Don't raise your hand. I'm trying to help you. So why didn't they just rush the house, tear the house? They had so many just tear the house to pieces and grab the Levite master or the angels. There's a reason they didn't. What's the reason? We'll get to that hopefully this week, maybe next week. But we have this great vile evil, and that is Genesis 6, Genesis 13, 13, Genesis 19. No such deed had been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. That's how evil it was. Obviously, Exodus is after Genesis. It's because of such profundities that I get the big money. In case you want to thank you for clapping. 
this religious professional thing is not as easy as I make it look, I have to say. Anyway, since Exodus, this evil that was in Judges 19, this evil deed was the equal to Sodom and Genesis 6. Nothing in that time period from Exodus to, to Judges 19 was equal. That's why the Exodus demarcation is there. Something prior to Exodus was equal, but nothing after Exodus was until that day. So we have to look and find out what was that evil. And as always, uh, there's a principle of occurrences traceable to the cause. What caused this? And there has to be proportionality. The comparison of, of Genesis 6 and Sodom to Judges 19 uh, needs to be at the forefront in order to explain what actually occurred. And again, there has to be equality with respect to level. By that I mean there must be, a, there must be consistency. The response needs to be equal to the offense. And every commentary that I have ever owned or ever read, and there are no exceptions, can, comes to mind. There are a few that go, oh my gosh, this can't be true. This can't be sodomy. We have sodomy going on in this country every day. It can't be that because of what the response was. So if you fail to have commensuration in your conclusions, then try, try again. Which is why I began this series with emphasizing the scope of the wickedness. It must be Genesis 13, 13 high. And that again is Sodom. It must be Genesis 6, 5 through 6, where God grieved at his heart. And he himself ended that wickedness with a consuming fire and a worldwide flood. Somehow the event at Genesis, uh, Judges 19, 1925, rose to the level of Genesis 1920. The outcry, the victims of Sodom, their blood reached to the heavens. And the Lord said, the outcry is great, Genesis 18:20. Their sin is very grave. Well, Judges 19, same thing. So what happened to Judges 19? What happened to Genesis 19? The YHVH declared Sodom to be exceedingly wicked. Great is the outcry. How great is great? How many people died in Sodom? Ten? How many died in Sodom and how did they die and why were they killed? How grave is very grave when God defines it. So wicked they exceeded his mercy, Sodom, Genesis 6. That's pretty high bar. He's, he's long-suffering. Total destruction. Literally killed them all. It was an extinction event. Sodom was an extinction event on a smaller scale than the flood, which was the greatest extinction event in the history of the creation. My point is, thank you for the front row. Cost me $20 every time, every single time. Let me count. Oh, my gosh. We'll have to dip into the tithing again, dear. (laughs) These elements that are at Sodom in Genesis 6 are present at Judges 19. So what happened? 
you have to have a conclusion that uh, of an evil that measures up. So whatever you decide has happened here, it has to reach that line. And I need to insert uh, Judges 17 and 18 right now because they form the underpinnings, if you will, of Judges 19, 20, and 21. So you've got five things. I was talking to Dave if he exists earlier. I have Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. I have five of them. And Judges 17 and 18 set the table for, if you will, for 19, 20, and 21. So you have to go back to these two, which are incredibly difficult. I mean, if you think what we're doing now is difficult, go back here. Try to figure those two out. Bring a lunch. There's five things of Judges. Those five. And when you figure out what the five things are, you can put them together. And what do you think you'll find? Oh, yeah. It's pretty cool. How many stones does David pick up? It's not an accident, these things. There's a phrase in Judges 17 through 21. It repeats, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is, again, repeated. That sets the condition that identifies what's going on in the nation of Israel at the time of Judges 19. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's hedonism, or what we call the prevailing condition of most of our country. There is no right or wrong. There is no absolute. There is only generalizations and relativism. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that ends up with this heinousness in Judges 19. So we have a progression. Again, if you think Judges 19, 20, 21 is challenging, you start out in 17 and 18. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is a complicated thing. Good luck. There is something ominous in those words. They are not words of inconsequence. Israel had already collapsed. Ask how did they collapse? What, what, this moral degradation came very quickly. What happened? Okay, moving along. Back to Wendy from Dallas. Okay, let me find Judges 19 here. And we'll read this one more time. What is before Judges 17? I'll help you. Judges 16. No, how does he do it? Uh, Judges 16, of course, is who? The death of Samson. He said, remember me. My Lord, remember me. Okay. Verse 23, I've read it. I can't read it again. The master of the house went out to them. The people surrounded the house and they said, bring out the man. They wanted the Levite master. And he wouldn't give him the Levite master. What he did is he gave the, the Levite master's wife to them. 
And they plundered her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine, the harlot, fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. She made it to the door. Which is an incredible statement. And he said to her, get up and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey and the man got up and went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine and divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, bone, bone and flesh. And sent her throughout all the territories of Israel. He obviously had a great deal of influence because he was able to send messengers with these things, these pieces. No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. The question with respect to the Levite master and his dividing his murdered wife. See, Wendy said, I don't get it. Let me reread that. I'm missing it. You keep asking, what is the evidence on the 12 pieces that makes up makes the 11 tribes go to war with the Benjamites? I do keep asking that. Because the question with respect to the Levite master and what he did, this dividing his murdered wife. And the wife was murdered, it says so 24, judges. She was murdered. Why was she murdered? The evidences are not what was in or on the pieces. I hope that makes sense. He sent out 12 pieces. There wasn't any evidence on the pieces. In the sense that you're thinking. Or in the pieces. The evidence was what was missing. What did they take? The sons of Belial, the wicked ones, they are the sons of Satan. We covered that before. Belial, Baal, the wicked ones, they had plundered the wife of the master. Now ask again, why did they do this? Remember Judges 27, the Levite master said this. Look, he all of Israel, the rest of the entire nation has come to Mizpah. And he, he says, look, because he sent these pieces out and they knew immediately what it was. And they came and they wanted him to testify what happened. And he tells them. But he says, look, all of you, look at this. All you have to do is look at these pieces. You know what happened. What are we going to do? Whatever was done to the woman could be plainly seen. Every piece bore evidence, bore proof of a great evil not seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. All 12 pieces. Remember, Benjamites, the Benjamins. It's all about the Benjamins, apparently. No one laughed at all. My wife is laughing at the fact that no one laughed, so she doesn't count. Golly. That looks so good when I wrote it, too. I'm disappointed in both myself and you. Yes. <laughs> and you can pretend to laugh. I, I'll accept that. I don't need it to be really funny in, in, in your self-experience. How does he get it back into that something? Your subjective self. Okay. 
Whatever had been done to the woman could be plain to see. They all saw it and they all knew what it was. And it had never happened before. The Benjamites had a peace. They got one. They knew. They absolutely knew what the sons of Belial. I'll wave back. And the people were unanimous. There was no dissension except for the Benjamins, the Benjamites. Every one of the people rose as one. Not that it was completely, totally agreed. The sons of Belial must be put to death. It is a great evil, and that great evil, vile evil, had to be removed from Israel, Judges 20.13. That was the verdict. They saw what they had done, what they had taken from her. And she lived just long enough to get back to the door and died. What did they take? So whatever this evil was, it was so shocking that a war is the only possible remedy. And this is going to be Israeli against Israelis. And cities are going to be burned. And if you read ahead, and I hope you did, all of the tribe of Benjamin is killed except for 600. So Benjamin is almost exterminated. So it's therefore, again, necessary for the wickedness from the sons of Belial to be at the level that you don't know about. Because you've never seen this. It's unimaginable. Again, it's heinous. Do we have anything going on in this country that might be similar? I would submit that we do. It is my view, as you could probably infer, that the white of the Levite was harvested by the sons of Belial and the twelve pieces gave the evidence of what it was they took, what was missing from her. She lived, again, survived, and made it to the door. Again, that's a theological statement. Her hands were on the door of the Levite master. She's the harlot wife. He's the master husband. That is enough to tell you that we have Israel and God himself involved in this story. In portrait, the Levite master judges 24 in his testimony. He provides the motive. He says, so the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, my concubine and I went into Jebeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Jebeah rose against me. How did they know he was there? Why did they rise against him? He's just a guy going through, right? Apparently he's not. And surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me. So they came to murder him. He just wanted to spend the night. And they rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They wanted to kill me, he says. So a hundred hundred questions. Why? Why couldn't they kill the master? I asked that about Sodom. Why not just, these are the sons of Belial. You can find out what they're capable of in the chapter coming. They're amazing. They're incredible fighters. 700 of them can kill thousands. Tens of thousands. Why didn't they just storm through? They wouldn't do it. Why not? What stopped them? Who stopped them? They could not kill the master. There's your answer. He had to come out of the house. I have a note here to read Mark 13. 
And we'll do that in a second. They could not kill the master, so they slowly murdered his wife and harvested her. Revelation 12. But we'll just go to Mark. Uh, let me put this here so I can find it again. Mark 13. Next week we'll do Mark 13. We'll start at 14, verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, now you know why we're here, right? Standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter. For in such days there will be tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time nor ever shall be. And unless those, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened those days. Does that language sound familiar? Now you know the New Testament complement to Judges 19 is Mark 13. So when you see the abomination of desolation, Christ is saying this to Israel. When you see the Antichrist come and desecrate the temple, and Daniel uh, spoke about this. Again, Christ is saying this to, to the nation, to the Jews. And that's why we study Daniel. The elect is Israel in that context. If the tribulation were longer, no Jew would survive. Woe to those who are pregnant. And to those who are nursing babies in those days, why? Why do babies come into play? What is it about babies? Let me ask this question. Are babies being harvested? Why? How great an evil is that? The children of Israel arose as one and went into the house of God. I'm now going to rush through it because I'm out of time. This is the recap. This is the uh, the Reader's Digest. No one even knows what Reader's Digest is anymore, do they? Is it on your phones? I guess it may be. This is the uh, shallow version. What happens is after the children of Israel see the evidence and look at it, that's all we ask them to do, look at it. All you got to do is look at it. You know what this is. We all know what this is. We got to kill them, every single one of them. Benjamin said, no, we're going to fight on their side. Holy mackerel, honey child, why did they decide that? But the children of Israel rose as one and went into the house of God. The house of God is the temple. It's not this building. This building hardly has any heat or air conditioning. or Certainly not the house of God. Please don't mistake the house of God with a simple church. I know everyone likes to do that. They like to elevate their church building to that level. It's not. Israel went into the house of God, of God to inquire of God. And they asked this question, Judges 20:18, Which of us shall go first to battle against the children of Benjamin? And again, why does Benjamin want to fight? What's, what's in it for Benjamin? 
And why does the children of Israel go to ask God which one of us should go first? What's that imply? Nobody wanted to go first. We'll let God decide. Well, who wants to go first? What's, we got four, we got 400,000. How come this is even in doubt? We have 400,000 Israeli soldiers, men of valor, it says. And I got 26,000 plus 700 Gibeans. Gibeans, sorry. 26,700 against 400,000. Why is there a problem? Everybody should want to go first. But no, they have to ask God, who should go first? God answers, Judah first. The sons of Belial obviously were a problem. The Israelis had some of the, the 11 tribes had some concerns. Everyone knew why the woman had been plundered the way she had been. They knew why they had done it. And, and, and they also knew what the Belial sons could do. The sons of Belial were what? They were some kind of being that we don't know about. Sons of Satan, somehow. Wicked ones. And, and Benjamin had chosen to ally with the forces of Satan. Again, what are they doing? What's in it for Benjamin? And the Lord answered Judah first. So why does Judah have to go first? Is this an honor? It's not an honor. It's a reprisal. Why is Judah bearing the most guilt for this? And Judah, as you know, if you've read, we didn't read it necessarily last week. I don't remember because I'm old now. Don't have enough walnuts. Judah is slaughtered, absolutely slaughtered in this fight. And the nation of Israel weeps before the Lord. And they ask the counsel of the Lord again. Shall I again draw near? They just got Judah. It implies that the sons of Belial didn't lose a man. That, of course, is not inconsistent with Scripture. That happened before. Joshua had the entire army return and not lose one man in battles. So the implication to me is that uh, Israel weeps. Judah was wiped out almost. And they asked counsel of the Lord, shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up again. What happens the second time? Israel goes up again. On the second day, they're massacred again. Clearly the sons of Belial are as powerful as they are evil. Finally, the weeping children of Israel, they fast until evening. They offer burnt offerings, which are portraits of Christ, and peace offerings, also portraits of Christ. And Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, asks, Shall I yet go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up tomorrow. So what do you have now? Go up tomorrow, I will deliver them into your hand. What do you have now to do? You have a math problem. How long was this battle? How many days? How many nights? Reading ahead, skipping ahead, Israel kills every Benjamite and burns every city and kills all of the animals. That's what they did. So whatever that evil was, that is the response. Only 600 men of Benjamin survived. 
and no women survived. They killed all the women. What was the problem? It's a near, it's an almost a near extinction event again of a tribe of Israel. Why is this a result? How pervasive was this evil of the sons of Belial and Benjamin? The entire tribe of Benjamin was infected. Only 600 survived. And then we have this, the rest of the story is every bit as astonishing. You have five things of Judges. What happens next again is as mysterious as what has happened to this point. And I have skipped 17 and 18 because why? There wouldn't be anybody awake in the whole place. It's that hard. It's calculus, derivatives, trying to find the roots of waveforms that look like this on the x-axis. See, you're already asleep. That's Judges 17, 18. That's all I got for today. That's all you can stand. We will not be here next week. Enjoy football. Uh, Do not have Kentucky Fried Chicken or gravy or potatoes.